everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show where we talk about the crossroads of the environment, our health, and longevity with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards is working on the Sound Health portal. I'd like to suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down just a bit, and clicking on the Watch How button. You'll see a short video explaining how to record and submit your first recording. Then go back to soundhealthportal.com, scroll down to current active campaign, such as cellular inflammation, PTSD, or TBI, or neuroplasticity, and choose one that is of interest to you. Click on that campaign, click free voice analysis, and the system will walk you through submitting your recording. You'll receive an email with a report back usually within one to two hours. To hear and share replays of this show, 20 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com, scroll down that page, and you'll see this post at the top of the episode page. There are also archives of hundreds of shows available there as well. There's a microphone icon at the bottom right corner of all the show notes. If you would like to leave me a voice message, a question for the guest, just click on that microphone, and you can do that directly from the site, and I will be notified. With that, Lynn Lesh founded and directed the Children's School of Evanston, Illinois, for 12 years from 1991 to 2003. The school, an alternative, democratically run school for students 6 to 14 years of age, received widespread attention in the Chicago print and electronic media as a unique approach to education, with lengthy articles being written about it in the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, and the Chicago Reader, as well as being featured on national public radio. The students at the school negotiated and developed their own individual learning plans, voted at weekly democratic meetings on many of the rules by which the school was governed had a significant hand in determining the subject matter of classes and group lessons, experienced freedom of movement throughout the day in pursuing their educational objectives and were not subjected to standardized testing and grades. Lynn is devoting himself to writing plays and works of fiction that connect classic existential literature and science, that is Dostoevsky, Camus, Kafka, and Einstein, to the modern world. In addition to having recently written and published a book, Intelligence in the Digital Age, How the Search for Something Larger May Be Imperiled, which concerns how the Internet and digital devices may be affecting people's minds and brains to the point of where it becomes increasingly harder for them to seek a larger, more expansive consciousness. Lynn joins us to talk about intelligence in the digital age. Welcome, Lynn. Hey, Richard. How are you? Um, well, the book, the book is essentially, I think, as much as for anybody written for those people who would li- be interested in seeking a larger awareness, a larger consciousness on the other side of thought and memory. Um, that sort of limitless consciousness that metaphysical seekers have talked about for years. But in order to do that, one, the, uh, the irony is in order to have a a consciousness or develop a consciousness on the other side of thought and memory, one must first have 
at full access to one's thoughts, one's memories, one's ability to attend, one's emotive life. And my thesis is that the Internet, the digital age, is having an adverse effect on those things by how people are using their devices. For instance, as far as our stream of thought, people are getting, their stream of thought is getting tied into how the Internet works, which is a, a large interruption machine, which has a very jumpy, distracted way of presenting information. So as once a, our pure stream of thought is being conditioned to behave that same way, I'm afraid. As far as our memories, I'm, I'm afraid that much of our memories are simply being outsourced to Google. Google is now becoming our brain's external hard drive, where we look for, instead of trying to ferret some bit of information out of our memory by going back and traversing the pathways that, that it, where it originated, we simply go to Google. And I worry that those same pathways are drying up, they're calcifying, because people aren't using them anymore like they once did. And also, if you don't have full access to your memories, you really can't see how your thoughts change memory, how over time you may remember something, but as your thoughts get a hold of it, it changes it. So if there's that constant constant process of between thought and memory. That's being abrogated by how people are, are using their digital devices. And of course, as far as our attention spans, um, people are, their short-term memories are being flooded with so much information that it becomes difficult for those short-term memories to pass that information on to long-term memory, which is what we use to think intelligently about things and also to attend to our world where we decide what's significant, what's not so significant, that selective attention. That's being affected, too, by the flood of information that our short-term memories are being asked to absorb. And then finally, by staring into a plastic screen or a, or a phone much of the day, looking at a, a virtual image rather than, you know, interacting with the real world, I'm afraid that people are being conditioned to accept this more, this shallower version of reality that they get by staring into the screen rather than by, by you know, dealing with the world outside and interacting with people and et cetera. Um, somebody put a once like, you know, if you go for a walk in the woods, there are so many different different aspects of the real world you can take in. But if you're looking at a plastic screen, your domain that you're observing the world has already been limited for you. So that too, I, so that's, that's my concern that people's thoughts and memories are being shallow, their attention span is growing less precise, and their, their emotive sensorial life is also being dulled. And I, I, those things are all absolutely necessary components, I'm convinced, of seeking a larger a larger consciousness on the other side of thought and memory. And and what started your, was there a tipping point or an incident or some occurrence for you when you were oh, younger? Yeah. That, yeah. What, was, was, what was the thing, what was the thing that got you on this path of thinking? Consciousness exploration, yeah. Well, I was getting my uh, I was getting my teaching license down at Indiana University, and I walked into the library and I'm just looking around and I saw the name of a book by a guy I'd never heard of, Krishnamurti, The Awakening of Intelligence, and I opened the book and started looking through the the, the quotes in the front and some of the book and and while this was incredible, here was somebody who was who was advocating following no path, no religion, no technique, but simply by using one's observation and of one's inner life 
can seek a larger awareness. And so over time, I read more of his books, and I went out to Ojai, California on a number of mm-hmm. occasions, heard him speak in an oak grove. There, There's a school there that's still associated with the, the Krishnamurti Foundation. But it's hearing him talk about things like the observer being the observed and, and freedom from the known, from, and that all knowledge is transitory because it's the product of thought. All those different things got me thinking about exploring consciousness at a, at a whole deeper level than what I had been aware of before. So, you know, after that, I, you know, I think I was practicing some kind of meditation techniques. I kind of let that go, and I just, this is the, I was convinced this is the way to, to explore a larger awareness. You simply have to explore where your thoughts take you, where your memories take you. you go in, if you have conflicts, you have to go into those. Sort of, um, he was kind of like a master psychologist encouraging people to, to seek something larger. He had been a part of the, the Theosophical Society for years and been raised by them. And he just walked away from them one day and told them that, you know, his quote was, truth is a pathless land, that you can't have any kind of formal structure or whatever if you're going to seek the truth. And, uh, and that's, you know, he, that, uh, that was a big part of, of this was hearing him speak and reading his books. And then, I, you know, I read other people, Alan Watts, et cetera. And, and uh, um, it's just been a, a fascinating part of my life. It gets difficult at times because if you're going to do this kind of exploration, you really have to have your wits about you. So you don't get caught halfway between the, the world of rational thought that you've always known and this larger awareness that is beyond thought. That can be difficult. You, so and that's another thesis of my book, too. You really have to have your wits about doing, doing this exploration. And if our, a stream of our thoughts and our memories are being abrogated by how people are using their digital devices, that's going to become much harder for people. But I would say as much as anything, it was just it was just reading that book by Krishnamurti and following that up with my own exploration over the year. And mm-hmm. I would say even my school that I started, that, that originated in part due to this interest in, in a larger consciousness. Of course, you can't teach these sort of things to, to eight-year-olds or whatever, but you can have an environment where the children in the school aren't conditioned the way many, school, many children in other schools are. Mm-hmm. I was, we'll jump to the plastic screens now. I was at the Macworld event in San Francisco in the Moscone Center when Steve Jobs held up the first iPhone. Oh, wow. And it's still in my mind. It still reminds me of the scene in 2001 Space Odyssey where the monkey picks up the stick and holds it up with fire as a weapon. And it's still to this day cinematically. Yeah, that's a great scene, really. Cinematically, that just reminds me so much of Steve holding up the phone and the whole room. It was a huge crowd back in the day when Macworld was a monster event. And he held up this phone, and there was just a hush over this giant audience of people, like literally like that with the stick. It was just exactly this yeah, the life-changing stick event. Became the iPhone. That's incredible to think about. <laughs> and just I can't pull that out of my brain just because I can still see him standing up the stage like I have this new amazing thing and it was new and amazing however wow we're here now and, and every we talked a little bit backstage one of my pet peeves is while I'm out to dinner with people I like to the audience knows that I was a chef for a long time and I really right. like to go out and dine it doesn't have to be swanky but just a nice meal and I go out with people who are not kids, and yet they can't but help themselves by check their phone every time it 
burps or farts or makes a noise to indicate something's happened. Like they, they have this bad case of FOMO, that fear of missing out of like, oh my God, what's happening? And I'm, I'm, we're here in conversation. Is that, can't we just be here? And, and that's a trend that I just find to be spooky. I'll use an Einstein phrase. I find it yeah, you know they're doing it. Now, this still all has to be, you know, experimented with and ferreted out in the lab, et cetera. But they're doing more and more experimentation of the idea that, that when somebody starts engaging in heavy Internet use, it, it releases the, the neurotransmitter dopamine into the pleasure centers of their brain. So what happens if that's the case? Now, this has to still be, you know, all explored and everything. But if that is the case, then people kind of like a, a fix, like a, like a drug, and your people are looking for any way they can get the fit, get to the fix the best way they can, they'll go to. And I think to a certain extent, if this is true, it may be like, you know, narrowing our political social discourse because people will go to the, the site that they know will agree with them because they can get their digital fix sooner from that site than take time to explore, you know, what the other, what the other opinions would be on certain subjects. I think that, and then, of course, the whole digital knot grows tighter as people are doing that. So I think that's an issue, too, as far as, as digital addiction, that people are, are using the Internet to get their next quote-unquote digital fix from it, not necessarily from a neurotransmitter, or from just psychologically. Nicholas Caro wrote this great book, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, The Shallows, was saying that the Internet is like you couldn't invent a better mechanism for addicting people, you know, wiring their brains. It's interactive. It's addictive. It's, it's continual. And, you know, let's face it, the people, social media companies know how to use that. The little like sign is just, that's a classic, classic way to addict people. You know, look to see who has, who has agreed with what you've had to say, et cetera, et cetera. So they've been, I think, complicit in this too. You know, some people who have, who were originally, who originally began, you know, some of the social media sites have lately come out about this, that they, they feel somewhat guilty about how these sites originated. They didn't the, the hook people and addict them. So, yeah, it's, it's, that's a real, both from a physiological and, and a, a psychological standpoint, that's a real issue how people are getting addicted to the Internet. And they've done studies that, that uh, have drawn similarities between digital addiction and obsessive-compulsive disorder as far as how people's brains, you know, operate, et cetera. And so that's, that's, it's a very, it's a real thing. Digital addiction, I convinced, is a real thing. And, and how to deal with that, that's, that's an issue. Because obviously mm-hmm. once, it gets, once it gets going in somebody, that's, that's how, does somebody, how does somebody turn that off? It may have become part of their psyche before they even think about putting down their iPhone. Well, and now I see parents who have children and the babysitter is the iPad. I don't mean to pick on the iOS world for those that are sensitive to that. I don't mean that. Any kind of no. it could be an Android tablet. I don't care. Any kind of electronic device. If that is the babysitter, there used to be a time, you know, when we had a board with three-dimensional wood pieces and you had to fit them in, and that was the babysitter. You know, when you were in the back seat of the car as a kid, that was the thing: is you know, make the thing ring or fit the pieces in there. There was at least some kind of cogging going on versus just swiping and continuously having 
visual stimulus going to your brain that might mean nothing or something or I don't know what, you know. How I'll even go further than that. I think it's a digital device become like pacifiers. I'll go and get, I'll go get my car fixed or whatever, and I'll be sitting in the, the waiting room, and you can see it on people's faces. As soon as some thought or some anxiety crosses their mind, they go right to the phone. It's being used as, as an avoidance of, of uh, going on inside somebody. It's, it's kind of like a, like I said, like a virtual pacifier that people are using to, to make themselves feel calm when, rather than dealing with the conflicted emotions and thoughts or whatever that are going on inside of them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the book, the, in the digital age, you mentioned Sherry Turkle's work. And yeah. one, of my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes from her was, I'm not anti-technology. I am, however, pro-conversation. And for somebody who talks into a microphone for a living, I'm with Sherry. I'm I'm not anti-technology, but I'm very much, let's talk about this. What do you think? Let's have a conversation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, it's, that's, it, isn't, it isn't really the devices that are the problem. It's how people are using them, you know. I mean, an iPhone by itself is not going to cause, you know, problems with one's attention span or one's thought processes, but it's how one uses that, that technology. When I was researching my book, I was able to email Eric Kandel, who's a, who's a, a Nobel Prize winning, you know, neuroscientist who studied the brain. And, and I, you know, I, I emailed him something about my book, and he, he said, don't focus on the technology. Focus on people's use of the technology. I thought, and that, those are two different things. I thought that was really interesting. Um, it's, it's not so much the technology that's the problem. It's how people are using the technology. So that, you know, that can give room for hope, I would believe, that, you know, as people become more aware of how they're using, you know, using these devices, what they might be doing to themselves. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's an important distinction, I think. Well, I think it's always when I listen to tech shows or other, other venues, but I listen to a lot of tech because of what I do. Right. I think it's fascinating that Steve Jobs didn't really let his kids play with iPads or technology, you know, didn't let him right. let them right. play with devices. And the same with Zuckerberg. He's not really yeah. pro-kids playing with them. Even though this is how they've made bazillions, they're not really, no, maybe you shouldn't use that so much. They're having a precautionary principle. How radical that, you know, that's really, I, I don't know that they intentional, I don't, I doubt if they intentionally thought about the dopamine and the hormone cascade, the dopamine, how addictive yeah. dopamine can be. But I don't think they intentionally did it, but they're certainly not going, oh, you should only do it for an hour or two a day at the most, or be, feel yeah. free to walk away from it. Somebody, it would be great for somebody to do, I, I know on some of the phones, it might be iOS, where they now have a, you need to take a break. But most of the people I know have that turned off. <laughs> yeah, they can see that distinction. So the, yeah. but that's good. You know, they can see the distinction between the technology and how the technology is being used. Those guys were so young, so many, when they started that. I mean, Zuckerberg was, what, 19 years old when he began Facebook. And yeah. I'm sure when he first started, he couldn't see exactly what that might become or what the ramifications are for people's you know, a mode of mental health or whatever. He was just starting a, a cool website where college students could, you know, hook up with each other. And so right. I think he's, he's learned as time gone on what, uh, what, what he's unleashed into the world. And, uh, 
you know, and, and you know, I think what something starts as is so significant as far as what it becomes. I like Twitter. I'm fonder of Twitter than I am of Facebook. Because I think Twitter was started out as this micro-blogging platform where a group of people could blog of each other over a certain subject area. And it's, the, the emphasis has always been, although unfortunately that's, people are getting away from that to some extent now, the information has always been how to transmit information, how to share information with other people, where Facebook is just kind of connections with people you know because it started out as pretty much of a, of a dating site. But, uh, yeah, I like Twitter if it's used properly because you can connect with all kinds of people on Twitter that you never thought you could get to know. I mean, just in writing my book, I've been able to connect with neuroscientists or whatever. And just, you know, I've watched shows on TV where I've been able to, to connect with one of the people who I'm watching on the screen in a rerun while I'm watching the show, you know, and they're commenting on what their performance is. It's a... It's, it's, that's an extraordinary technology. You can have that, that amount of information sharing into the world if it's used properly. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it, like I said, in, just in writing the book, I was able to connect with any number of people. If, in the old days, if I just written letters to them or tried to get a number to call on the phone or whatever, forget it. But the, the fact that I was just say they'd get their Twitter address and, and uh, connect with them made this so much easier. It's true. I, I'm a fan of uh, LinkedIn for that same reason, that it yeah, amazes me, yeah. the people that I can reach out to on. I've made connections as well on Twitter, and but at LinkedIn in particular, because it's a little bit more strict in a certain way, I'm really amazed at the kind of people, because I've done working with Sherry and now doing this solo, I've done yeah. about 700 hours of shows, and it amazes me that you can just message somebody and they'll respond and go, yeah, let's talk. And it's like, I know really, it's surprising this is the, the kind amazing of people you thing can get technology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, here's Eric Kandel, a Nobel Prize winning scientist at Columbia University. I just read his book about memory recently, and I got his email from the Columbia website and sent him this email about my book asking him about it, and I got a message back. That was unbelievable, you know. Yeah. In the days before Twitter, that never would have happened, not in a million years. So that, you know, I like, that's the one thing about the web. I really like how you can, con you know, connect with people you never thought years ago that you could, could connect with. Mm -hmm. And now let's, let's jump for a moment to, you have three strategies for quieting the mind. If you, if you could talk that, about that a bit, and that leads me to a follow-up question to the quieting of the mind. What's the benefit to us of quieting the mind, do you think? Oh, well, I think it makes life so much easier if you're not jumping around inside your mind trying to chase your own thoughts, the tale of your own thoughts, and trying to, to develop security or freedom from fear by just simply thinking your way into it. It makes for a much easier, calmer life. And also I think a quiet mind is really the key to a larger consciousness. It's, you know, I won't try to define what that is because I don't think it can be defined. But I think when you realize that, that your thoughts aren't going to really give you the sort of security you want or they're not going to give you real freedom from the fears you have and you see yourself running around inside your own mind and pursuing all these dead ends and corners over the years and you see that that's not going to go anywhere, then your mind begins to naturally quiet down. And, and when the mind becomes quieter, then I think something larger 
the possibility of a, of a limitless consciousness can enter the spaces. But you can't think your way into that sort of thing. It's, it's, your mind has to become quiet in order for that sort of larger consciousness to enter. And also there's the matter of direct insight, seeing something directly, that aha moment where you just see something, you know that it's true. That is something you can't think your way into either. You have to just be in a state of real have a quiet mind and be completely attentive to what's going on in your life to, to have that moment. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I think people can do to help quiet their minds when they, they're getting the whole flood of information from the Internet and they've just, you know, downloaded some piece of information, um, rather than just go on to the next bit of information immediately, stop and take time to think about what you've just absorbed. Turn away from the plastic screen and think about what the information is that you've just taken in. And that way, if you do that, it's just not going to be blown away by your short-term memory. It'll be, over time, you're going to be assimilated, and it'll become much more part of your working memory. And uh, you can use them much better. So I highly encourage people to do that rather than just go from one bit of information on the PC or the phone, stop and, and think about that information you've just assimilated and connected to other information. In other words, that, that sort of constant interplay between your thinking about what you've just taken in on the web and, and the web. But, you know, today so many people, they just jump from one thing to the next, and that's just going to overload your short-term memory. And then short-term memory can't pass that information onto your long-term memory, which can, you know, assimilate it and use it to think well. So so I highly encourage people to do that. And something else, I, I, I guess this is kind of a little bit off the beaten path. I encourage people as much as, as possible to try reading actual bound books rather than reading just e-books. I found that when you do that, and this is I'm speaking from my own personal experience here, I found that when you do that, when you're holding the actual physical book in your hand, you become absorbed much more in the in the writing and your mind becomes quieter as you're as you're focusing on that. So I encourage people to give that a try too, to to uh to read a bound book rather than just read e-books. Well, and I think the idea of having uh, being somebody who has a lot of books around because a I have a lot of books around and b because right. I interview a lot of guests with books that for me every time I look around and I see a book title then that brings all that information back up into my brain. Uh, yeah, it's a real it's a it's a some languages would call massing it up that it really does when I look at a book I I have a book up here by Doris Rapp that says is this your child a medical doctor who was a thought leader in the world of environmental sensitivities and kids. And I interviewed her in the, in the late eighties. And so all of that, when I look at the book, that's what happens is I begin to have thoughts about that. Now I don't have that on a Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> just, I can't get that same, you know, thing. It's just another, for me, computers are more tools and less, they are thought-provoking, but in a different way, because I, I can easily go down a rabbit hole, which can be distracting. I, I really want that moment. to. I tend to go out in nature. That's my thing, is I go out and I do a lot of photography. And yeah, for great. me, it's a walking meditation, because yeah. when I'm doing photography and I'm focusing in and I'm watching an ant or something or a leaf or a, the light or something, I'm just there doing that because that's what I want right, to focus on. Right, right. You know, one thing about, and I, I forget who said this, but what, what's so great about nature, when you're out walking around in nature, there's a whole world of dynamics that, that you can have access to, you name it, you know. 
Whereas if you're on the computer, that domain is being limited by what you're observing inside the plastic screen. So I, w I just worry that if people spend so much time inside the plastic screen, when they go out for a walk in the woods, will that same narrowed focus continue? Where they, or will they have a more expansive awareness of all the different, you know, sights and sounds that they could be, you know, apprehending if they were, were open to them? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Henry David Thoreau, too. Whenever I go to Concord, I love going out to Walden Pond, and, and uh, he spend time out his, in his hut, like, learning from nature. That's, so that's, that's wonderful that you're doing that. It's always been my, um, to a certain extent, a savior. Uh, I've had a camera in my hand since I was in junior high, and yeah. it's always been my place to go. It was my meditation to go out, and, and I grew up in a spectacular location. I grew up in the Monterey Peninsula. So I grew up in wow. Ansel Adams' yeah. land. I happen to be fortunate enough to watch him work a few times. And he might go to a location two or three times and watch the light for much of a day and then decide at which point he wanted to photograph it and go back and set up and be ready to go. Because when you're taking pictures with an 8 by 10 piece of sheet film, you're taking a single image. You're not taking a hundred. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very focused kind of there's the moment, boom, and you capture that moment. He was and just a, so into all the different dynamics of the natural world that he's photographing. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's funny, as you're speaking, I'm looking at a, at a photograph of his from New Mexico, out in the desert mm. and the, the huts and the light and everything. It's, he was wonderful. He was great. He was, but a, I, he I, was a possessed, cranky artist. <laughs> but he really? was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> artists can be that way. They're, you know, he's, he's oh, yeah. very hyper-focused on what he was doing. And he didn't like a lot of, you know, annoyance around him. He was a soloist. But many photographers are like that where they – so I think part of it is that you're very hyper-focused on what you're doing, so other stuff distracts you. It's kind of like you talk about being in a state of, you know, having an insight. Being a photographer, that insight is the moment at which you want to capture that scene. And it's like, exactly. there it is. And if you have yeah, you don't want somebody – no. Yeah, yeah. No, he's – he was in the zone when he photographed. He didn't want anybody <laughs> interrupting that. By Very all much means. so. Very much so. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, that you know, you. that's yeah, that's uh, that whole issue of direct insight is. I've always felt that that's how you apprehend truth about the world, not through thinking your way into them by having that aha moment where you just see something directly. You don't even have to think about it. It's just there. But I think, you know, in order to get that moment, you're, you know, you have, to, you have to be really attentive, super attentive to your world, natural world, et cetera. And your mind has to be quiet to allow for you to that, have that kind of attention. So I think, I think both those things are necessary. But I'm, I've become convinced over the years you're not going to think your way into larger truths. You're going to see them through moments of direct insight. Um, you know, I was, you know, just lately, you know, since I've been writing this book, I've been dealing with the idea that how real is our past, you know, and I, I had one of those moments not too long ago. It just hit me, the, where is the past? Is the past real, you know? Where is it right now? Here's a table. Here's my hand. Where's the past? Is it it's something that, you know, we just create with our thoughts, but is it real? So I, that things like that, I think, you apprehend mainly through direct insight. You can't think your way into them. And then you, hmm. then you have to explore them a little bit further. But that, to me, was a real insight I had just a couple of years ago. 
the, is where is the past? Is the past real? Um, I know that's kind of a, an esoteric out there thing for a lot of people, but it just hit me. And, and there's so much having to do with that if, if you believe that, you know. Where is, uh, what is the self-knowledge, all those things. But uh, that's one moment of direct insight just to share that that I had recently. You know, it's just this, this uh, conception of the past being not as real as we think it is. And and because you were in a space of allowing that, you didn't just dismiss that. You didn't pick up your phone and ask Google. And I'm not picking no, on Google. No, no, it could be no. DuckDuckGo. No. It could be anybody. <laughs> but I mean, in the sense of you, you allowed yourself to have that space, to have that thought, and wander around in that thought. Exactly. And consider it. And no. that's that's yeah. a real. I've I've had a number of aha moments, even in in terms of as we talked a little bit backstage, I got my degree as a master herbalist and was a healthcare practitioner for a long time, starting in the late 80s. So you, there are times when you're working with somebody or talking to them that you, you need time to consider it. You can't just come up with an answer. You need time to like, what about this and what about that? And you sort of stack the indicators, kind of that's the advantage of Sherry's work is it really helps you target those ideas. But before that, you had to kind of stack things up and look at them, and, and you take the person as a whole. You don't just go, oh, there's this spot on their skin. I'll give them some salve to smear on that. You have to take the whole idea, and you and you need to pause in that moment so you can have that like, ah, perhaps it's this. Let's talk about that. And so the, You're talking the about what I did for years with my school. Like every ah. day I would I would go out for a cup of coffee and I would go over the mistakes I made, you know, kind of trying to see those clearly. What did I do wrong? What And, you know, and that just helped a lot, you know, to try to – and I would actually go through in my mind what I should have done. And that helped me, like, flush the mistakes out of my system so I didn't carry around with me. But I was constantly doing that. It made this mistake I didn't feel good about after school was over with this particular child and and uh you know what could i have done differently that that just helped a lot to go over that and and think through what i might have done instead i, I want to go back to that school that where you founded that school yeah. what was your experience of watching kids when they found they had a voice when they were empowered to actually say this is what i'd like to do today and here's why yeah, this How has to do with that. Yeah, this has to do with largely with their background. If you know, there were kids who came to my school who had been in in traditional schools and had been told what to do, what not to do for so long, they didn't see the environment they were in. It took them a long time to realize. Some of them never did. Hey, you have you have this kind of latitude here, and the kids would still be messing with the teachers. You don't have to do that here. This is not where you spend the school. So there's that, and then also parents who gave their kids a lot of latitude and opened them up to things you you know you might think kids a certain age wouldn't be exposed to. Those kids did really well. Um, the kids who were bright and might have been constrained in public schools, they did really well in my school. It just had to do with their background, what uh, what they came there with, you know. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that I needed to do, and I, I really, after, what, 12, 13 years, I really didn't figure this out until toward the end. I needed to have the thing, the school structured better to allow for that kind of free choice 
because one of the ironies of doing a progressive school where kids have a lot of latitude and freedom is you have to have it structured to allow for that. Like, for instance, there'd be kids who, because I didn't have the, the, the consequences for them not doing what they said they're going to do structured as well as they might have been, they just would wander around the room and I wouldn't really know what to do with them. And then, you know, then I figured out if we have this structure where people have a, a learning plan and they agree to do it and then all the kids in the school decide democratically what happens to somebody if they don't follow through on what they said they're going to do there's that structure there that allows for you know that allows for you know the child to deal or not to deal with the amount of latitude they have and also to give me more clarity where i don't didn't feel i had to nag kids to do work it would it was there that uh, the consequent was already put in place by the whole group as a whole democratically. So that, that was a long time in coming to realize that. You give kids a lot of freedom and then you have to deal with that issue. There's this vacuum where they're not doing anything. And what do you do? How do you structure that? So that's another, that's another uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, another dynamic of, of, uh, of open-ended education that teachers have to deal with. When it's not as structured, how do you handle that openness? And I found you really have to have a structure that allows for the amount of freedom that you give the kids. Otherwise, it's just, just you're going to be it's just going to be push pull with you and the children in the school. So that was the key ultimately to the school was to have a structure that made the amount of latitude that I gave the children work. But it, that was a long time coming. It took a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you were developing a whole new paradigm of education thinking. Rather than the classic, we all sit in rows. We, you know, I'm old enough that when I was in in elementary school, we saluted the flag. You know, there was, that was the beginning. Of, that was the beginning of the day, and it just was how it was. And, and or it was very orderly, and you had, you know, you hand in your homework and your thing, but there was no real choice. It was just this is how we did it, and this is what we do, and here's the thing. And if you fit into that world, it was great. I didn't happen to be one of those people, and it was always a struggle. Not a good academic because I—that's not how I learned. No. And so the no. idea of being in a school where you had a choice of how you learned would be amazing. That sounds very exciting to me. Yeah, I mean, they would—you know—kids would start school with the beginning of the year, and everybody would sit down, and we would develop a learning plan that they would agree to adhere to, and then you know there'd be like some sort of meeting at the beginning of the school day, and then everybody would just go to work doing what they said they're going to do with the teachers in the school, helping them do it. And a lot of times, you know, teachers would be sitting down on the floor helping the kids. Freedom of movement throughout the day, that's imperative for the right kind of democratic learning environment. Everybody went to work, and, and, you know, and, and it was always based on this equilibrium of rights and responsibilities. You know, like I'm, I'm asking somebody, well, how come you didn't follow through on this? And they, well, I'm just not interested anymore. And then my response, well, I, had to, I went to the store last night and bought this because you said you were going to do it. What's fair? Whose, whose rights and whose responsibilities are involved in this? That was always the bottom line of the school more than grades or test scores, this issue of an equilibrium of rights and responsibilities. And then we would have a democratic meeting once a week where kids could – you know, bring up issues and vote on certain things. Um, certain things weren't were, were off the table, you know, we're going to have a two-hour recess or whatever. But uh, <laughs> the way we decided on what the consequences are for somebody not following through and doing what they said they're going to do in their learning plan was decided democratically by all the kids in the school. 
So if the kids all decide through Democratic vote what's the consequence going to be for not following through on something in your learning plan, you've had a hand in deciding that and voting on that, and so have all of your classmates. So it isn't just coming from the teacher getting on your case for not getting your work done. Um, so, And I think that's, that's real important as these kids go into a democracy, understanding what that what that equal of rights and responsibilities is. Well, it's decision by community. Yeah. This is the idea of decision by dictator. It's the idea of when we used to live in villages. And there was yeah. kind of that, yes, there might be a king or a queen in the village, but it was still more of a cultural decision on things because if we all decided that we were, if we all went out and tried to hunt for everything was different, we, we would divide into packs and somebody would go off and find an elk and somebody else, another group might go off and find wild corn or a berry or, you know, hunt for food or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, there was more, yeah. it was more a consensus by here's what we need to achieve today. Who wants to do that versus this idea of lining up and this is, we're all doing the exact same thing. Yeah, there's, you know, in any, I found in any kind of learning social situation with children, there's always, almost always, an equilibrium of rights and responsibilities where everybody's rights are in balance. And that's, that was the real task of running this school of, of in any situation, not just with the group as a whole, but dealing with individual children. Where is that, where is that equilibrium of rights and responsibilities between me and the student, between the other students in the school and one of the other students. So that, that, was, all, that was always part of the discussion. Well, I don't want to do this. Is this fair? And then having that, that constant discussion about what's fair to all those who are involved in any particular situation. Well, and one of the things that I found fascinating and, well, I have a bias toward really liking it, is that I don't hear anywhere the idea of making people wrong or being disappointed, which are both right. very tricky arenas. You're actually having a group conversation of, you didn't do this, what's up with that? Let's have a conversation about that. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> there isn't this, uh, oh, there isn't this, like, uh, punitive effect that, that grades and test scores and all those other, you know, adult-created um, measurements bring. Yeah, it's just simply like a, like you said, an honest discussion. <clears throat> you didn't do this. This wasn't done. What's fair to me? What's fair to you? It's, it's more, it's putting the whole matter on a, on a much more human level rather than a, this preconceived, well, you're going to get a grade for this or not, or there's some, some kind of punishment for not doing this. That was, that was really the basis of the whole school is just this, this democratic attempt to decide what's fair to all those involved in the school, both individually and as a group. And that, that can be difficult, as I'm sure you know, to do that and also have significant learning take place. That's the trick. I mean, it's, it's easy if you want this learning to take place to, to become authoritarian and, and uh, you know, insist that it be done and there's consequences if it's not done. But if you're going to have a democratic learning environment where you're always discussing with the students in the school what's fair to all involved, that gets that gets a lot trickier. You have to really forces you to really deal with the children on a much more personal level than you would otherwise. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know you talk about this. This is a slightly a slight turn, but it's in the same category. You wrote a book called "Our Results Driven Testing Culture: How It Adversely yeah. Affects Students' Personal Experience," and I've always felt that testing 
is very tricky, partially because so much of how schools are funded is based on testing. So they, yeah. they, they begin to spin the test to have particular answers that they're looking for to show that we need funding for this. Versus what you're talking about in your school where the group gets together and says, here's what we're going to strive for today or this week. It's, it's a much different process where people are actually involved in the process themselves versus here's what you're doing. Do this. I'll test you later. Yeah. The problem I thinking. have with testing is, you know, as soon as you put a mark or a grade, <clears throat> excuse me, on somebody's learning, <clears throat> it's the best way in the world there is to create dulled, disembodied experience in that person. When they're not, when they're not inside their own experience, <clears throat> what they're learning, they're doing it for some exterior reason. Then that, then you know, then it dulls their experience. Then they're outside of their own experience in a, in a way. They're doing it for some reason that's outside of a reason to learn something. And it's, it's just a, it's just a real way to create dulled experience in young people and disembody their experience. Is to is to is to attach a mark or a grade where they're doing where they're learning for some reason that's exterior to the actual activity itself. It takes them out of their own experience in a real sense. So that's that's my real problem with grades and test scores. It just creates that sort of dulled experience in young people. And can you expand that thought a little bit about? Talk a little bit more about the importance of experience and being in the experience. Oh, you mean as far as children and, and education? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if somebody's if somebody's learning an activity, okay, they're interested in the the activity they're learning, or they have a valid reason for learning it. They wanna they wanna learn math because they have an interest in science, or even even something like they wanna. Um, Oh, they know their their father is interested in history and they want to please their father. Those are all valid reasons to learn something where they're actually inside their own experience while they're learning. <clears throat> while it, whereas if they're learning something to get this exterior mark or this grade that's outside of what they're learning, then they're not inside their own experience so much anymore. They're doing it for something that is tangential to the very thing they're learning. And it just it just dulls their experience and and takes them outside of their experience in a way that I just isn't necessary. It's just a, a grade will to do something for some reason that's exterior to the actual activity. You know, um, takes you outside of the actual activity, takes you outside of your own experience. And that's that's my real issue with with grades and test scores. It creates that that dulling, disembodied experience in young people. Well, and we've all grown up with people around us who are great test takers. <clears throat> oh yeah, and yeah, that's sure. a, that can be a skill where you can be in. A, you might not be well in that system in the world of great test takers. The people that do well and get great scores are the people that really know how to take tests. Yeah, sure. Now, and and this is a particular thing for me because as a kid, if they had tested me verbally any time I needed to, it was later found out that I was dyslexic. Right. And right. if I was asked to be in conversation with somebody about something, I seemed pretty smart. But if I was asked to, to read and learn about it, it was really hard because I'm old enough where dyslexia wasn't really a thing yet. And once that was figured out, I seemed kind of smart if people talked to me. Yeah, but yeah. if I was asked to take a test, it was really hard. 
it was really difficult because of that issue of the reading issue. But if somebody somebody sat down and talked with me about it, I could be pretty articulate about what we were talking about. But I couldn't take it as a test. So it's it's you look at you look at test scores and then what kids know. It's just there's sometimes there's a real there's a real variance there. You know, I had these these three kids in my school. They were sharp boys. They were 11, 12 years old. And we learned a lot of theoretical physics together just because they were interested in it. They'd seen me reading Stephen Hawking's book, and they wanted to know about it. And we learned about Einstein. We learned about quantum physics and, and, you know, spent the whole year doing that. And then the payoff at the end, we went down to McCormick Place and, and uh, saw Stephen Hawking give a lecture on imaginary wow. time. So they, wow. these, they, these kids were learning at a really sophisticated level. And then when it came time to take the Iowa test, the basic skills for science, I don't even know how valid that is, one of them just didn't do well. But it was ridiculous because his level of apprehension of science was, was already so far beyond what the test takers wanted him to, te- wanted to test him on. It was, it was just silly. So the tests really often have very little to do, I think, with what somebody's capacity is to learn in a certain area. I mean, that's a real fallacy that thinks somebody doesn't do well in, in this subject matter on, on the Iowa test of basic skills or whatever, that that's a valid measure of, of uh, what they can do. It's just, it's just not true much of the time. And it's just, I just, I just think once you do something for something that's outside of what you're learning, it's just all of a sudden it's, it's dulling your experience. You're doing it for some reason that's tangential to what you're interested in, and it, it just, you know, it's just not a good thing. And so that's my issue with grades, even beyond the fact that they're not often not so much valid measures of education. There's just this dulling of kids' experience when they, when they, they learn for a reason that's outside of, the, of why they're interested in learning the particular subject matter. Have you looked at the work? I'm certain you've you've looked at it. I don't know that you've written about it. The pleasure of learning is that does that ever figure into the educational world? Of you can you can get a kid. I grew up with a bunch of kids who are creatives, uh, filmmakers or photographers or artists or all sorts of things, and they were brilliant in their field. And some of some of them went on to make massive quantities of money for what the works that they did. But they might not necessarily be ac- brilliant academics. They were very intelligent, but just in a different way. And it was yeah, hard to see it being yeah. measured. You know, they were always looking for that measurement of, can you tell me, you know, the hydratic equation for something or other, which I still and don't right away, that person is not going to be as interested in the very thing they're learning. As soon as you right. introduce yeah. that, that's, that's, yeah, that's the problem right there. You know, people, I wrote a book, Learning Not Schooling, where, you know, the the thesis was that that those are not the same thing at all, necessarily. In fact, very often they're antithetical. And schooling is a way of conditioning people to to apprehend certain subject matter in the way you want them to. And learning has to be completely open-ended if it's going to be real learning and you can can, uh, help guide a child toward what they want to learn. But as soon as there's that preconceived, results-driven curriculum, then, you know, it's, it's, then, you know, things change very quickly where they're not going to be as interested in the whole process of learning anymore. Is there a way, <laughs> I'm sorry to ask this toward the end of the show, is there a way where we could have an educational system where we could give people tools to learn? <clears throat> 
I because think, of I that, think the, I just think that's so much more powerful. Yeah, the, I think the issue is how you structure the environment. Do you allow for the? Do you allow for kids to follow their interests and and uh, be in a democratic learning environment? You're talking about like like internet tools, et cetera. Well, perhaps, yeah. Even the, oh, I can't think of his name now. There are schools where it's more open, you know, open thinking. It's more like what you're talking about in the school that you had, where yeah. groups get together and make decisions. That kind of thing, where you you learn. They give you the foundational tools on how to think and how to create and how to be creative, and then you choose the direction you want to go, and then you're allowed to blossom in that direction. It gives you the skill set to learn, to think, to reason, all those kinds of things. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'd have to think about that some more. That's, that's real interesting. What are the exact tools that will allow people to learn this more organic way we've been talking about? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that I'd have to think about some more. What it's what. Uh, particularly how to use the digital age to do that. Um, I know there's a lot of learning today where, where educators are trying to connect kids to the world of work. I think that's always a great idea that um, um, somebody's learning something in a particular science or math. Connect them with actual scientists and mathematicians, and um, that will stimulate their interest, I think, as much as anything. Um, we used to take the kids at our school down to see this this one physicist down at DePaul University who was would show them all these chemical lasers, lasers and everything else, which was wonderful. And um, that that then we would go back and learn, you know, and, and have lessons based on what they learned from them. Or, or I, t- I used to take kids in my school who were studying the Constitution. We would go down to the criminal courts building and observe trials there so they could see the actual real-world implications of what they're learning in school. I think that that is a real area that could be opened up even more. It just connects schooling and the world of work much more completely than it is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a radical idea. I think that's a great <laughs> – I think this is the perfect time for me to say, where can people find your book? Where would you like people to find more about your work? Because I think this is really, I would, love to see, I would love to see this as a trend. I would love to see this idea of learning, that we actually engage people in learning. I was one of those people that had a difficult time with it, and once I began to figure out my style, I get great pleasure out of learning. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's matching. The, it's the teacher taking time to figure out what's going to work for the young person they're teaching. That's the key. I mean, there was, I mean, basically, my school didn't have a preconceived philosophy. The philosophy is what each child was, was doing, and, and you would try to find out what worked best for this child. This child needed a lot of structure. This child didn't. They needed to be left alone a lot of the time. And it's just finding a different approach for each child is really the, the key. But um, people can go to my website, linlesh.com, and they can get the book from Amazon or, or my publisher, Roman and Littlefield, or any of the other book services. But, yeah. Thank you so much, Lynn. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that was thank really you, great. Richard. I really enjoyed that. I, I'm getting great information from the chat, so I know that other people are going, this is really not what we expected and great. So thank okay, you so much. Okay, great. I'm glad to hear that. And everybody have a great rest of the weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Take care.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.